the markets. We just can't get enough of them. Markets are the drivers of your wealth and investment strategy. Welcome to Magic Markets with your co-hosts, The Finance Ghost and Mohamed Nala. Together, we have more than 25 years of combined experience in the markets. In addition to our weekly free show that you know and love, we have now launched Magic Markets Premium, a weekly show for our subscribers in which we give detailed analysis on global stocks. Every premium show is accompanied by a report covering the company's strategic drivers, its operating environment, its competitors, bull versus bear case, technical trading indicators, and a long-term investment thesis. At just 99 Rand per month, we are committed to making institutional-level analysis affordable for all investors and traders. Visit magic-markets.com to go premium and unlock your full potential in the markets. This episode of Magic Markets is brought to you by Westbrook Alternative Asset Management, South Africa's leading provider of alternative investment funds and co-investment strategies. With over 8 billion rand in assets under management across South Africa, the UK and the USA, Westbrook provides South African high net worth individuals, wealth managers and institutions with a unique gateway to the world of alternative investments. This includes private debt, hybrid capital, real estate, private equity and venture capital. Visit westbrook.co.za to find out more. Westbrook Alternative Asset Management is an authorized financial services provider, FSP number 46750. Before we start this fantastic episode of Magic Markets, I do need to tell you that the contents of this podcast are for information purposes only and they do not constitute investment advice, nor do they represent a solicitation of any member of the public to invest in any security. The investment vehicles managed by Westbrook Alternative Asset Management are available to qualified or sophisticated investors only. All listeners should seek professional financial advice prior to making any investment. Welcome to episode 69 of Magic Markets and we're sticking with the international flavor this week but with names or at least a company that you've heard before and that is Westbrook. But this time around we do not have Dino on the call as we've had over the past uh, couple of months. We in fact have Richard Asherson sitting in London and we have John T. Osher much closer to home in Johannesburg. And ironically, you would never guess it, but it's London that has been giving us the problems with sirens before we could get this recording started. The craziness of London has now calmed down, so Mo, I'm going to welcome you first before we start chatting to our guests. Ghost, always a pleasure doing this with you. And uh, yeah, welcome, I think, to the Westbrook team, uh, to our regular listeners. Westbrook's uh, no strangers. I mean, we've been talking to the Westbrook team about alternative investments. It's, it's really exciting because I think quite often we just focus a lot on the listed space. Uh, and there's an entirely different universe out there. And that's why these conversations with Westbrook are definitely so interesting. So I'm happy to welcome alongside with you, Ghost, uh, Richard Asherson and John Tiosha from Westbrook. Guys, welcome to the Magic Markets podcast. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Good evening. Good evening, Mo and Ghost. It's good to be here. So we're used to hearing from Dino. So uh, this is going to be some new voices on the on the podcast, which is awesome. Uh, big shoes to fill. Dino's just finished the Cape Epic. Uh, I saw some pictures on Twitter. It looks like he's made it almost in one piece. So uh, good, good for him. But we're going to chat to the two of you about the private debt strategies at Westbrook tonight, which is going to be incredibly interesting. I think just before we do, just so that our listeners can get to know more of the Westbrook team, I think if you wouldn't mind each taking just 30 seconds about what your role is at Westbrook, you know, how long you've been with the business, that kind of stuff. Cool. So I've been at Westbrook going on six years now. Joined Westbrook six years ago with the view to be part of this growing alternative asset class um, and to step out mainly the traditional banking route and and get involved in private assets. The main focus that I'm currently both in Westbrook, South Africa, but more on a global thing is, is this private debt push. So 
I look after the private debt strategies in South Africa, which we'll talk through in a bit more detail. But uh, we, we kind of had one that focused on asset rentals and now going into more traditional private debtors, which I guess is the topic of this conversation. And it's really to drive that strategy, both from an investor perspective, but also finding those interesting opportunities to invest in in private debt. Cool. My, my background. So I left, uh, I was at Investec. I left to join Westbrook in 2000, end of 2014. Uh, to set up what was our 12J business, launched that, and Jonty joined us shortly thereafter. So I've been at Westbrook just over seven years now, um, and I was within the SA business for just over two years, and then they shipped me off to the UK to set up today what is Westbrook Alternative Asset Management UK, and we look after a number of different strategies, including private debt and what we call hybrid capital, which is a debt-led approach to, I guess, private equity-style investing which we can chat through as well on, on today's show. Yeah, fantastic. One thing Westbrook seems to do really well is nurture young talent. I've only met a few team members so far, but you all seem to really enjoy it. You've been there for a few years and kind of come through the ranks, which I think speaks volumes about a business, genuinely. Not all of them can can get that right. So Mo, I'm going to jump into the first question, if that's okay. And, you know, I recently read uh, there was a communication that went out from Westbrook around this kind of private debt strategy, why it's there, et cetera, et cetera. And the concept of these negative real returns featured quite strongly there. And these kind of terms, you know, people hear them, but they don't always understand what they actually mean and especially what they mean for people's wealth and for their investment portfolios and their long-term journey, which is ultimately what everyone is interested in, right? Is building wealth over the years and, and, and eventually moving, getting a yacht somewhere where there's no sirens. I think that's always the, the end dream. So, you know, perhaps if one of you or both of you could chat to this concept of negative real returns, like what is this and what does it actually mean in practice for investors? What is the big risk and issue here? Negative real returns effectively means for the capital that you have out there, you effectively getting poorer in relation to the future due to inflation. So by ways of examples, it's easier to explain if inflation is sitting at 5% and you're investing in an asset that's earning you four, um, by the virtue of you earning less than inflation, you in real terms, you are going backwards. And really, that's kind of what is, is the thesis of, of private debt, where we've come from kind of globally and in South Africa, is you've had, call it, low interest rate environments and inflation starting to tick upwards. And the lower interest rates in traditional, call it, say, fixed income asset classes aren't on a, on a returns basis keeping up with inflation. So therefore, if your cash allocation of your portfolio is sitting in these traditional kind of fixed income assets that aren't beating inflation, your cash component of your portfolio is you're actually getting poorer with time. Yeah, I almost want to jump in there because, you know, I think it's important at the outset to just try and contextualize this a little bit for myself, for the listeners as well. So you make reference to the cash portion of the portfolio. Uh, private debt theoretically could also be compared to, I guess, your your shorter duration or your kind of your, yeah, yeah, let's let's maybe leave it goes to shorter duration, uh, fixed income. So it would be a comparative to an income fund, for example, that a traditional investor would hold in their portfolio. Now, you know, fully cognizant of the entire aspect around real returns and how private debt potentially gives you a little bit of a bump over your traditional debt instruments that are out there in the listed space. Uh, but what about the current macro backdrop where we are seeing rising interest rates that generally tends to impact bonds. Again, for our listeners that aren't familiar with this, we've done a couple of shows on this, but as rates rise, bonds tend to fall in value. Now, with private debt, they're unlisted instruments. So you don't necessarily see that in the mark to market. But does that come through in terms of potentially higher default rates? How does that actually work 
practically if you're holding private debt as an asset class in your portfolio? That's a good question, Mo. I think what we've seen, obviously, in the bond markets, as you've mentioned, if interest rates go up, you get the volatility in the in the mark-to-market or the capital value of, of that bond. But what's important, I think, to understand is if you hold those bonds to maturity, that, that capital value unwinds. So I guess the real risk you're looking at there is duration risk. What a lot of fund managers in the fixed income space have done to increase yield is extend their duration risk. So therefore, your portfolio to increase yield has taken on more mark-to-market risk for the movement in interest rates. I think in the private debt space, you can be clever around how you increase yield without necessarily having to increase duration. And that can be in various forms, but particularly in the type of deals you're doing and the type of lending you're doing. For example, it's a simple, call it supply-demand dynamics. If you're playing in a sector where the supply of capital into that sector is not there, you can generally demand a higher return on that capital. And we'll talk you through some of those dynamics, how we achieve it, but but you can shield yourself against, call it, interest rate movements by, by these sort of private loans playing in certain sectors, even by having floating rate loans, which, which we do a lot of, where your, your capital kind of value is not kind of determined by movement in, in the movement in interest rates because the interest rate adjusts based on, on where the cycle is. And also, I think... In, in private debt, you can also play in shorter term duration stuff, which, which we do a lot in the UK, Richard can talk you through, which also then, again, mitigates against shorter term mark-to-mark movements. But again, I think you discussed it in detail with Dino, being in private assets, you don't have this market of where, call it, short term movements in capital drive investor sentiment. And by being in the private market where you're getting, say, illiquid assets, but a premium for the illiquidity, um, you can shield against some of that, call it listed environment movements that you get in both equities and fixed income. Yeah, what I think you've seen, you've seen, I think, um, large capital flows out of the bond market globally, right? And that's because of this negative real rate risk that we're seeing in the market. And I think if you look at low yield investment grade bonds with fixed coupons, where your principal and, f- and coupons are fixed, that will obviously have a lower value um, as as the outlook of the yield curve steepens, Right. Um, just because your purchasing power is deteriorating the longer you hold fixed income or fixed coupon bonds. You know, to the extent you've got variable rate or floating rate bonds, they haven't been impacted as much because it's obviously mitigating some of the interest rate and inflation risks into that. But in in a high inflation, low growth environment, the bonds are a fixed, uh, you, have, you have fixed upside, right? You, you know, so You've got to look for assets that potentially have either a real yield that, are, that is inflation-linked um, or has the ability to, you know, to hedge your inflation risks. Um, if you look at the other asset classes, I guess higher discount rates just in general, the steepening of the yield curve means that it's impacting not only kind of bonds, it's impacting equities, right? Both ETFs and the underlying counters, just because valuation multiples are all based off DCF values, discounted cash flows. And as the rates go up, discounted cash flows, you know, as your present value come down. What you're seeing, and I think, you know, real assets being kind of real estate infrastructure, other private market assets, those might be beneficiaries of inflation uh, for a number of reasons. But one of them is, as an example, the replacement cost of of property or real estate is becoming, is is increasing with inflation. Build costs are going up dramatically. Commodities, you've seen the spike there. So, you know, by, as a result, you know, people are, are, 
putting large capital flows into real estate and infrastructure um, as an inflation hedge. Um, so it does increase their competitive positioning on those types of assets. And for those that own those assets already, it's increasing their, you know, their competitive positioning. The other asset, you know, the other tailwind we see kind of in this environment in real assets is effectively like they're incentivizing investors to invest into real assets and to private assets because you're not getting any return for keeping your money in the bank. In fact, you're actually losing money by keeping money in the bank. So the goal at the moment is if you can't get positive real interest rate returns or real returns, at least try and mitigate to the extent possible, the impact that negative rates will have on your portfolio. And and compounding is the name of the game, right? And negative compounding works the same way as positive compounding. So the idea is to limit your negative compounding as much as possible. And when the cycle turns, obviously, to compound positively. Richard, it's music to my ears about these real assets because one of my alternative real assets is 53 years old and I get to drive it on a Sunday. And that's benefiting very nicely from inflation. Uh, not so much from a strong rand, but uh, you know that, that's, a, that's a different matter. But your points around equity is also spot on. I mean, Mo, we've talked about this many times. We've looked at it in Magic Markets Premium. I've certainly written about it. It's this kind of flight to yield, flight to quality. We've seen it in the tech space. We've seen people diving out of these very long duration tech stocks into the stuff that's actually making money today. So all of this is kind of a similar trend. And it's, it's amazing how it impacts the different asset classes in different ways. Jonti, something you touched on was this kind of supply-demand dynamic around private debt. And when you are putting capital into an area that perhaps can't get it so easily, then you can charge more of a premium for that. And I guess much of that is the thesis for private debt. I mean, ultimately, something we've certainly observed, Mo, is you know, the banks are really good at you know, consumer lending. That's their bread and butter. So to individual lenders, they are really good at big corporate transactions, putting billions and billions into a specific company. They are eternally bad at lending to SMEs. They just are. I don't know what it is, but you'll never find an entrepreneur who will tell you 10 great stories about that time they borrowed money from a bank. It's just (laughs) these people don't exist. So apart from the fact that Westbrook appeals to entrepreneurs, I would imagine, in terms of, you know, placing debt. And Jonty, we've had some conversations about that outside of Magic Markets, you know, with potential lenders. Um, There's the other side of the coin, which is that, you know, it's really attractive for investors to invest with you and allow you to deploy that capital into this kind of private market where the banks are just not playing or not playing effectively? I mean, would that be an accurate summary of the kind of private debt opportunity? Yeah, I think that's exactly it. You would have noticed, and and guys who read up on private debt, is it really kicked off after the global financial crisis when the banking models tightened credit, tightened appetite, and their cost of capital got more expensive, that they really just, as you say, focused on the call it bread and butter corporate stuff and the bread and butter retail market, which which they know. And that left a big gap in, in that SME entrepreneurial type market where, where good businesses and good entrepreneurs are looking for capital, but they aren't necessarily serviced by the investment banks. And the business banks generally have a f- specific vanilla formula on, on how they play in those markets. And it just created this, this vacuum for private lenders to enter and to really extract asymmetric returns for having the, the capital but also potentially providing flexible solutions. And when I say solutions, it might not only be a debt package, it might be a package that includes sub, subordinated debt, mezzanine debt, and equity. So, so you bank the client more holistically and, and you partner them as a provider. But you can also maybe take longer durations, shorter durations in a bank. You can play with, with durations. You can also potentially price some fixed and some floating or some cash paid and some roll-up. So 
So you can be a lot more flexible in the space, which also allows you to structure for risk, but also to get kind of that premium pricing that you could get maybe in the bank space. And, and that really kind of all these, these combinations gives us a reason for being in the market in that there is this demand in these sectors for capital, but it's not just the capital, it's the solution, the flexibility, the way we, we partner with them that also drives kind of value on their side. I think, I mean, one thing also just to add is the speed at which we can move relative to a, an institution, right? And I think at Westbrook, we pride ourselves on being able to deliver a solution for the borrower or for our partner as quickly as, you know, as, quickly as, as possible within the confines of the transaction, Sometimes it does get lost within the, with the, you know, within large institutions. I think the UK is not dissimilar. It's actually identical, right? And, and, and the focus really in the UK is on homogenous product-based lending, right? Where it fits into a, either a very scalable product like home loans or very large complex loans, right? And those are very well catered and very well covered. It's what we call kind of the forgotten middle, which is the low mid-market segment, which is, excuse the hooting, guys. It's London. We talked about this on the way in, yeah. Yeah, I was just saying, like, I think that to us is, is where we have relevance and where the industry has relevance, right, as, as private lenders and solutions-driven capital providers. Yeah, I think that's such a valid point because effectively businesses like Westbrook were born, like you say, you know, kind of gained prominence post-financial crisis. Banks have been notoriously bad allocators of capital, which is effectively their sole purpose for existence is, you know, facilitate the flow of capital. So finding new niche players like yourselves is always so enlightening. And I think this is why it's relevant to our listeners as well, is that these kinds of structures, investments, private debt, um, have always existed in the institutional space. They've existed with pension funds. They've existed with people who would go and structure whatever pay of profile they required at scale. And I think the ability for Westbrook to provide that, uh, the scale factor down to private investors at the end of the day is, is a real selling point. But I want to I wanna pick up on something that Richard had actually indicated. So, I mean, he's, he's sitting in London and, you know, he, he speaks about the homogenous product set that you kind of find in the conventional finance space. But what about some of the other differences that you might be picking up in terms of the South African business and the offshore business? So specifically in terms of the types of opportunities that you're seeing, as well as the types of opportunities that your investors are asking you for. I think just to, to go back to, to your your point before, which I think is important, is is, is Westbrook. And, and what we're trying to do is we're trying to democratize kind of access to private capital transactions, funds, and opportunities, where historically they were controlled or dominated by the pension funds, uh, the life insurers, and the banks. And you, by investing in your pension or by putting money into a unit trust, were getting exposure to private capital markets that you just may or may not have known that. So, I mean, that is one of the things that we are trying to do and trying to give more, I guess, power to our clients and to give them better transparency and better line of sight as to the, you know, the opportunities that they're investing into. Sorry, so Mo, going back to your question, what is, what is the offshore product versus the, the, the SA product? Yeah, so, so, so both from a product perspective as well as what your investors are looking for. You know, because I'm, I'm cognizant of the fact that maybe UK-based or international investors are looking for something different, potentially, than what a South African investor is looking for. Yeah, so look, I think the, the background to when we started Westbrook Yield Plus, which is about five years ago, was that, number one, we were looking for opportunities to deploy our own capital into, call it lower risk, capital preservation-focused 
assets that had a shorter duration liquidity profile. And I come from a private, I come from a debt background. It was my experience. You know, I've been in debt and lending for most of my career. Um, and private debt was something that we, we started investigating when we started um, Westbrook Alternative Asset Management in 2014, 2015. We came across and we started looking for opportunities. And, and that was a combination of both real estate, shorter term real estate lending opportunities as well as corporate lending opportunities. And what we found is within the markets that we play in, the low mid market, the real estate lending market, there are opportunities to enhance our return, but without taking a greater chance or greater capital loss risk, right? So there are what we found different risk premium or different risk arbitrages that we're able to extract, which give our investors a higher return than what you would typically get for a public traded uh, a fixed income alternative, right? And it's very difficult con- to compare the two, and I'm not going to try, right? And really, in, in my mind, it's, it's a combination of three different aspects, which is return, liquidity, and complexity. And a combination of those three things determine kind of how much risk you're taking, what the return is, um, and what the arbitrage looks like. And our approach really looks at the different aspects of cash flow elements, the development of kind of a risk-adjusted return framework, which we focus an absolute fortune on within the business is our risk framework and making sure that first and foremost, we don't lose capital, especially when you have no upside in debt. The key is not to lose capital on anything, right? And to diversify into a portfolio because those two things are going to kind of protect you. The second is making sure that you're well secured and that you're aligned, very much aligned to the borrower that if, you know, he's in a situation where he's getting hurt, he's getting hurt more than we are. And we can, we can use that to our advantage. And then looking at all the liquidity and the complexity aspects of these opportunities, which I think is incredibly difficult outside looking in, because no loan that we do is the same, no borrower is the same, no security structure is the same, it's all bespoke. We try and homogenize it as much as we can, and we use standard you know, LMA documentation or London Market Association documentation, etc., but each one is complex. And depending on that level of complexity we get to charge accordingly. I think the other thing that our investors are looking for offshore is tax-efficient investing, right? And creating a structure that's tax-efficient for them both coming into the asset whilst they're getting returns during their, you know, their investment period and then on exit. And again, we spend time looking at what a South African investor you know, looks like and then also for our offshore investors as well, which we have started to accumulate a number of offshore families and um, and high net worth investors. I think it's good that we chat about the investors coming into these funds because I think it's important for our listeners to know, you know, what is required to get in, to get a piece of the action here. And I think, Richard, what you touched on there was, you know, this comes from the Westbrook principles originally investing their own money. And that's something we've definitely picked up from Dino in all the discussions is it feels like Westbrook was really built around, you know, the founders investing their own money and then building infrastructure to allow other people to come along for the ride, which is always great in terms of an alignment and, and numerous other reasons, really. So... I think we need to touch on, you know, how much is needed to invest in these funds. And the stuff's available on the website, but it's good to just mention it here. And then we can just point people, you know, where to find more information. How much do you need? How long is the money locked up for? You know, what sort of returns are you targeting net of fees? Because that's always really important in active management, you know, situation, which is what this is. And that would obviously be different for the South African and the offshore funds, I would imagine. Sure. I'll go ahead and then, John, so you, you, you talk on this. Eh? So, look, in summary, I mean... What we're really targeting for investors is for them to invest, uh, especially within the Westbrook Guild Plus um, fund, is they've got to be looking first and foremost for capital preservation. Uh, you know, capital preservation at all costs over growth, right, and return. 
With that comes a stable, non-volatile, non- or uncorrelated return profile, which should produce somewhere between 6 and 7% in pounds on an annual basis. Right? So we're really looking to be quite defensive. I often say to my clients, if I outperform you know, that benchmark, you should fire me because I've either taken too much risk or done something wrong. This is not a capital growth product. We do have other products that are capital growth. I think from an investment perspective, we, we look to bring on investors that have $100,000 or the currency equivalent into the portfolio. If they come through a wealth manager or are advised, that can be less depending on the, the regulations that they're coming into. From a lockup perspective, so you invest for a minimum period of 18 months and thereafter there's a six-month notice period uh, in order for you to get liquidity. So typically, you know, most private debt funds in the UK are five years uh, or longer. So this does have a, a really different flavor designed for a South African investor or South African mindset on, on liquidity. From a fees perspective, depending on the fee class you come into, um, it's approximately a 1% to 1.25% management fee. And then we take a performance fee of either 10 or 12.5% above a hurdle of 5% in pounds. So minimum the investor would get is 5% before we earn any performance. So, so I think from a South African side, obviously what we're investing in is slightly different and the yields we earn are slightly different given we're in the South African market. But we've tried to kind of mirror the construct to what we have in the UK. So so very similar to Richard, our minimum lockup period is, is that 18-month with thereafter a six-month notice. Also very similar asset management fees, so an annual management fee of around 1.25%. And then the performance fee, except our hurdle is is Jabar, which is a kind of South African linked lending rate. We target to give the investor um, anywhere of prime plus two to prime plus four. So so it is kind of prime linked, which again, when we spoke earlier, it's it's floating rate loans, which we're mainly doing, which protect against uh, inflation and increasing interest rates. And currently we're tracking just over 10% um, yield per annum, and that's paid out in cash to investors. So really... We're looking from a South African perspective to earn, call it double what you would earn in a traditional fixed income bond fund and to really give uh, inflation beating um, cash returns. Yeah, the one thing I just like to just to add, sorry, is on I think on both products, both of them are structured quite uh, interestingly that for investors, the yield that they get comes out as either dividend and or capital gain. And therefore, you know, on a after tax basis, uh, incredibly attractive when comparing it to traditional income, fixed income products. Yeah, I think, Richard, thanks for that, and Jonti as well. Just in, in terms of that, I mean, you almost almost preempted some of my question, but I wanted to just touch on one point that I don't think was covered, which is, you know, are your distributions paid out on a, on a regular kind of frequency? Because a lot of, you know, quite often for investors looking at income, that monthly cash flow or quarterly cash flow, whatever it may be, tends to be quite important to them. So do you kind of roll that all in? Is it something that's customizable or do you pay that out over a certain frequency? So again, to the construct Richard was speaking about, both in South Africa and the UK, we have the ability for the investor to select. Obviously, if it's a pocket of capital where they need the cash flow to live on, they can select a distributing class and then they'd invest in that class or they can select a reinvestment class or accumulation class where effectively it isn't pay out and you automatically get new units in the fund and it doesn't necessarily trigger the tax in their hands. So that compounding of selecting the, the reinvestment or accumulation class um, is quite valuable if, if you don't need the money to live off. So, I mean, we've been going in the UK, the fund's been operating with, with third-party investors for over four years. 
um, we pay out a 6% dividend uh, every year paid semi-annually, so 3% in June and 3% in December. I mean, those are really impressive numbers, and especially with the clever tax structuring. I mean, if you need to be reminded of how good some of those numbers are, go and draw a long-term total return chart of the JSC All Share, and you will realize that the numbers John T is uh, talking about uh, in so- over some periods would be beating the market, the equity market. So that's some really impressive stuff. Ghost, I think that's what's important about private debt, is that private debt in in call it a market that's underperforming from an equities perspective should still give you the same return as if the equities market is flying and, and that's really what the value about having it in your portfolio is is that it's that more stable predictable less volatile investment class and that's the purpose that investors should invest into it yeah it's a yield enhancer it's part of a broader portfolio strategy it's uncorrelated with a lot of what's going on in the market it's all the things we've been talking about, I think, on these episodes with Westbrook and incredibly interesting. Mo, almost out of time. I don't know if there's anything else you want to ask. I think, you know, pretty much covered from my side. Guys, it's, it's been fascinating. You know, unfortunately, I think we are out of time on this one. But, you know, again, our regular listeners will know that we have, uh, we've got the ability to tap into the very smart minds at Westbrook uh, quite often. So I certainly think that this is the starting of, you know, discussions that we've been building out over a couple of shows here. I've learned some stuff. I hope our listeners have learned some stuff. Uh, it's been fascinating. John T. Richard, before we let you guys go, where do people find more information? What should they do? Who should they contact? So I think the best thing is just to go to our website. We, we structured the website in a very investor-friendly way where they can navigate the investment classes they have interest in. So that website is www.westbrook.co.za. And you can see um, all the types of different investments as well as the people to contact if you're interested. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you. I think that is up for this week. So thank you so much. We look forward to welcoming Westbrook back next month, as we have been doing. Mo from a peaceful Canada, Jonty from a peaceful village of Joburg, and me in Cape Town. Richard, good luck there in London with all your sirens. Thank you so much for your time, and uh, really appreciate it, and we hope that some of our listeners will reach out for more information. Thank you. Cheers, guys. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks, guys. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not financial or investment advice. Please speak to your personal financial advisor.